morning. Would you turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus? So really close to the beginning, Exodus, and then turn to chapter 28, Exodus 28. We're concluding this morning a series in which we have taken a tour of the tabernacle. We've taken a tour of God's earthly home that he divinely designed to communicate through symbolism and all these other actions, some vital spiritual truths for us. And I know many of you have wondered and asked because I've, I've noted it. Starting next week, we'll be turning our attention to the book of Revelation. Uh, so if you are wanting to plan ahead and read ahead, you can start reading the book of Revelation for next week because we're going to work by verse by verse from the beginning uh, to the end, unless the Lord returns or calls me home. But today is the tabernacle. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 28. And so, so far what we've seen in the tabernacle, as an ordinary average Israelite citizen would have walked up to it, he first sees that it's kind of disguised and disclosed. There's a um, a barricade around it, as it were, kind of a privacy fence. So there is, in in one sense, a, a veiled nature to the glory of the tabernacle. But then as you'd walk in, the first thing you'd encounter would be the altar of sacrifice, where you learn that God forgives sinners through a substitute. Then you'd come to the bronze basin filled with water where you're told and taught that God cleanses sinners from all unrighteousness. And then as a priest would go inside that first veil, you'd look on one side and you'd see the table of showbread. And you'd be taught that God communes with sinners, that he has fellowship with him at a table with bread. And then to the left, you'd see this candlestick or this golden lampstand. And you'd be taught through symbolism that God is a light to our feet, our lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Then you have this altar of incense and be teaching you that our prayers arise before the throne of God. And then there's this veil with cherubim woven into it. And it's reminding you that there is a separation between a holy God and sinful people. And yet the high priest can go through that veil once a year, one time with a sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the Ark of a Covenant, the place that represents God's reign and rule, his authority. And yet through the blood, it becomes a throne of grace, a mercy seat. Well, today we're going to look at the clothing that God designed for the priests to wear. Very exciting stuff here, kind of a clothing fashion show today. So look with me at Exodus 28. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, and then I'm going to jump to the end of the chapter and read verses 40 to 41. So Exodus 28, starting in verse 1. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. And then jump to verse 40 and 41. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes 
to behold glorious and beautiful things from your word. And Lord, that you'd grant through your spirit that in beholding glorious and beautiful things, that we would be transformed to reflect your glory and beauty more and more and to be drawn to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The clothes that you decide to put on every single day are always making some kind of statement. They're always communicating some sort of message. Some clothing choices make very loud statements. Others make very subtle statements. Some people are very keenly aware of the messages that their clothing choices are making. Others are very unaware. And depending on the clothing choice they made, they're either blissfully unaware or sadly unaware. Just consider some of the messages that you see communicated through clothing choices. So if you see a man walking very nicely pressed suit and tie, you likely think that they're in an important profession and they're someone who wants to be taken seriously in their job. If you see a man wearing Crocs with socks, you see someone who's probably retired and doesn't care anymore. Or someone who's unemployed, one of the two. Some women's clothing is designed to communicate that they care about modesty and propriety. Other women's clothing is not designed to communicate that same message. And I don't know if this is the case as much as it is today as it was for me when I was in high school, but the brand of clothing that you wore was a very big deal. It was a status symbol. And it communicated how cool you were and to what group you belonged to. And because my parents were very stingy, because they did not love me, my back-to-school shopping was done at thrift stores, second-hand stores. Can you imagine what Child Protective Services would have done if I would have told them what my parents did for back-to-school shopping? But for me, it was a big deal because I bought into the lie that brand is status. And so it was painful for me to shop there. And so for me, my thought was that my clothes communicated, I'm never going to be popular, but I'm going to try as hard as I can to be popular. Well, we know that clothes communicate in a way because we also see environments and situations in which there is a dress code. So for example, some golf courses, if you look on the website, they will have a dress code tab and they'll say that you have to wear this with a collar, whatnot, because they want to communicate the tradition and custom of the game. Or some schools will have a dress code because they want to avoid the social status silly games with kids and they want them to focus on learning. So they eliminate that all together. Well, whatever setting or situation it is, clothing communicates some message and never was that more clearly communicated than in the clothing that God designed for the priesthood of Israel. Every single article that that priest put on was divinely designed by God to communicate to the people the significance of the calling and work that that priest was taking on. So whenever the people saw the priest in his uniform, they were seeing the glory and beauty of the clothing that God had designed. And they were not just to see that externally, but it was to communicate through that external symbol, spiritual messages that the people were to discern. So what I wanna look at today is what were the messages that the clothing of the high priest communicated as they went about their work in the tabernacle? What is the glory and beauty that shines through their clothing? Well, first, the glory and beauty of the priest's clothing communicated 
their divine and unique calling. The clothing of the priest communicated their divine and unique calling. Look at Exodus 28, verse 1 to 3. So this is the the beginning, the setting up of why they're going to have this uniform. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and the sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. That last phrase is very important. In all of this, notice that God is the one taking the initiative to establish who is the priest and what they're to wear. He's the one who designs all the clothing, and he even labels it my priesthood, lest anyone get any other ideas. So what that communicates to us is that there was no such thing as a self-appointed priest. A self-appointed priest was an oxymoron, and one who thought he was a self-appointed priest was just a moron. Because only God had the authority to call and appoint the person who would mediate between him and the people. And what in the Old Testament we see emphasized is that God in his holiness is opposed to man in his sinfulness. And man in his sinfulness is opposed to God in his holiness. And so there's this massive chasm. How do you bridge that chasm? Well, God has a priesthood. That is to be the people who stand in that gap and only God has the authority to appoint who is that person who stands in that gap. So if you're not specifically, specially called by God and you take on that role, you're just an imposter. So think about it. We have a criminal charge today for someone who impersonates a police officer. And it's a serious crime. If you are found impersonating a police officer, you pay large fines and there is a hefty prison sentence that you will face because not just anybody can take on that uniform and assume that role. It's something that you have to be appointed to. Well, it's far more serious to impersonate a priest in Israel who is only called by God to this special office. So God alone chooses the person who is going to mediate between him and the people. And that priest can only come in that role when he has a sacrifice with him. He never just comes on his own. It's not even just the clothing, but he has to be carrying a sacrifice. Now you might be thinking, with all this uniqueness and specialness on this office, you think, what is so significant about Aaron and his sons that they got picked for this role? There must be something special about them. And you will search in vain to find anything special about Aaron and his sons that qualifies them for this office. In fact, you'll find evidence to the contrary. In fact, if you go over to Exodus uh, 31 or Exodus 32, you will find Aaron throwing gold into a fire, forging a golden calf and leading the people in the worship of this false idol. And when Moses comes and asks his brother, what the heck? He says, you know what? The the gold fell in the fire and out popped this golden calf and I, I just did what the people asked me to. He knows better. He knows better. And yet he still remains in that holy office that God had called him to, even though there is a lack of qualification in him. In fact, if you were to find a qualification, there's really only one that you'd find in our text. There's only one qualification that God lays out for the priest, and it's in verse one. Look at verse one with me again. Then bring near to you Aaron and your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel. 
That's really the one qualification that a priest had to meet. They had to be from among the people of Israel. So if this were listed on a job website and there was a job description under qualifications, it would say something like this, must be a fellow Israelite. He must be made up of the same stuff as his fellow man, just like them. You might think I'm making a big deal out of a small thing, but the author of Hebrews spends a little bit of time on this very point, making a big deal out of it. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter five with me briefly. Hebrews chapter five. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time looking at the priesthood, how Christ fulfills that office and, and making some notes for us. And look at verse chapter five, verses one to three, and note how the author of Hebrews answers the question, why is it a big deal? that the priest had to be a fellow Israelite, just like the people he served. Verses one to three. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. They're to mediate between man and God. And he is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse two, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. I think the point the author of Hebrews is making, looking at this from Exodus 28, is something like this. Have you ever been in a situation, a struggle, circumstance, whatever, where you said, I wish there was someone who knew what I was going through. I wish someone who had been through something similar could come alongside me and sympathize with me. Or... Have you been going through something and the Lord brought someone that you didn't even know had been through a similar situation who came alongside you and said, I have been there before. Let's walk through this together. When you've had that happen, you realize the blessing and benefit of knowing someone who can sympathize with you, someone who is of the same stuff as you, who has been through the same stuff as you. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. When the people would come to the priests to deal with their sins, They were coming to a fellow sinner who also had to deal with his own sins. So ideally, that priest would deal gently and sympathetically with him because he himself is beset with weakness and sin. And this offers a good model for us as a Christian community. One of the goals of Christian community is that we would come alongside one another in our struggles and our sins in a spirit of sympathy and in a action of gentleness. Now, we have to be careful what sympathy is. Sympathy is that middle point between being overly harsh and unhelpfully affirming and endorsing of sin. Sympathy is that middle road between being overly harsh. You miserable wretch, how could you do that? Or unhelpfully affirming. You sin, I sin, we all sin, let's just keep sinning. That's not sympathy. That's affirming and endorsing. Harshness is not going to Uh, win friends and influence people, nor is affirming people and endorsing them going to get them through what they need to get through. Christ was a friend of sinners, but he did not affirm and engage in their sin with them. He did enter into their world, but he sought to bring them out of it. And so what we need to be as a community is those who would come alongside one another in a spirit of sympathy and gentleness, saying, I have some idea of what you're going through. Let me help you bear this burden. Let me help you overcome this struggle. And I even remember one of the 
parenting pieces of advice that I got that I've never forgotten. Sometimes I wish I had forgotten it is a godly older man told me when appropriate, confess your sins and struggles to your kids so that when they sin and struggle, which they will, they can come to you knowing that they'll most likely be dealt with you gently and carefully. And that was a big deal to me because I grew up with a generation of parents who didn't do that. That was kind of a sign of, of weakness, not a knock on my parents. They, they have their faults, but I'm a shining example of what they can do when they put their power to. <laughs> Sorry, that was not in the script. But it was a, it was a good piece of advice that I, I've seen bear fruit because we are weak just like them. And even in a community, that's a good example and model as well. Well, as much as the priests had a likeness to their fellow Israelite, once they put on that priestly uniform, they had a very distinctive unlikeness to the people because they were not wearing the ordinary clothes of the ordinary Israelite. It was unlike anything any other Israelite would have worn or seen. So on the top of his head rested this beautiful linen turban that had a gold plaque on it with the inscription, Holy to the Lord. And then on his shoulders rested these precious stones in gold settings that had inscribed on each one of them six of the different names of the tribes of Israel, so 12 in all. And then that was connected to a chess piece that he wore around his heart by a golden string. And that chess piece had 12 precious stones on it, each one with the name of one of the tribes of Israel on it. And then carried inside that chess piece were the Urim and Thummim, these kind of mysterious dice-like figurines that were probably used for discerning the Lord's will in difficult and unique circumstances and situations. And then the priest's outermost clothing was called the ephod. And this was a special garment that was made of gold and blue and purple and scarlet linen. So it had all these bright colors. And on the hem of that garment hung golden bells and beautiful pomegranates. And then last but not least, There was even, yes, the priestly linen undergarments so that every single part of the priest was covered and clothed and concealed in beauty and glory that made him fit, as it were, to come into the presence of God. So when the priest put on this uniform, there was an undeniable distinctiveness from the people. And you wonder, what what did the people think when they saw the priest in this uniform? Well, we have a second century BC description of what the people thought when the high priest was in his uniform going about his work. This is one of the descriptions we get. It says, how the high priest was honored in the midst of the people in his coming out of the sanctuary. So it's likely the day of atonement. The priest has gone into the holy police and he's come out to the people. He was as the morning star in the midst of a cloud and as the moon when it is full. He was as the sun shining upon the temple of the most high. He was as the rainbow giving light in the bright clouds. So you have this picture of beauty and glory representing the distinctiveness of the priest. And so you have this tension with the priest. It's this like us and unlike us tension. The one wearing the clothing is like us. He's beset with weakness and sin. He has to make sacrifice for his own sin. And yet the clothing that the priest wore made him look very unlike us. He was someone who was so distinct from us. And so, in a sense, this is communicating a spiritual truth. The fact that the priest who is like us is wearing the clothing 
communicates that we need a mediator who is like us, one who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Yet the glory and beauty of the clothing communicate that we need a mediator who is far more glorious than the sinful condition of man could ever produce on its own. And thus enters Jesus. And as Jesus walks this earth, the great struggle that the people had with him is, who are you? Who who is this Jesus? Because he seems like us, and yet he seems unlike us. And it kept giving people kind of a cramp between the brain to understand who is this man. Because Jesus was very much like the people. He looked like an ordinary Israelite. There was nothing about the appearance of Jesus that would have set him apart from anyone. There was nothing about even some of his actions. He got tired and slept. He got hungry and ate. He got sad and wept. He experienced pain and cried out in agony, and he bled and died. So he seems so much like us, and yet he was also unlike us. He touched and healed. He taught and with authority. He would speak to the lame and they would rise up and walk. He would call forth Lazarus and he would come forth from the tomb. He was examined and scrutinized and found faultless and innocent and pure. And he died and rose again from the dead. And then even having risen again, he showed the wounds in his hands. He ate fish with the disciples and yet then he ascended into heaven. And so to stop this brain-crushing truth from cramping our brains too much, this like us, unlike us tension, sought to be resolved by our theological forefathers. So our theological forefathers, they got together in the ancient city of Chalcedon for a good old-fashioned church council. And they penned these words, which every Christian should know and no true Christian can deny. This is what they said. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one accord, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, having a rational soul and body of one substance with the Father, according to the Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. So in other words, For reconciliation to take place between God and man, it required the God-man. The only person who could bridge the chasm of the distance between a holy God and a sinful people was the God-man who could perfectly represent both sides. The only person who could pay the debt of sin, which was so great, was the God-man. As one early church father said, the debt of sin was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. It was an infinite debt owed by man that only God could pay. So what we have in Christ is the God-man, truly, fully God, truly, and fully man. And being that, he can look at you and say, I will take your place. I will be your representative. And being truly and fully God, he can look at you and say, it is finished. Fully, perfectly paid, sufficiently. So Christ is the one who resolves this like us, unlike us tension. Well, in the second place, the glory and beauty of the priest's clothing communicated their total dedication to the Lord. So in the priest's clothing, and you can see it, I put a little diagram of it on page seven of your bulletin. There was an intentional connection between the clothing the priests wore and the tabernacle where they served. 
So you know how people like to match their clothes to their environments or different places? So it was the first time I ever saw Lily Pulitzer clothing, I had no clue what I was looking at. I thought someone had eaten rainbow sherbet ice cream and vomited on a white t-shirt. Because I, I come from the Midwest. I have different opinions now. Um, I come from the Midwest, and we have very muted clothing. You know, people are just kind of generally somber, and they live in darkness and whatnot. But you come to Florida, and you realize, okay, it's a bright place, bright colors, tropical things. And so I see now why, because it's, the clothing matches the place. Or you go into a store, and you can identify who is a worker there if you need help based on kind of the colors and logo of the place. So if you go to Home Depot, you see someone in an orange shirt, you know, they work there, and they can help you. If you go to Publix and you see someone in a light green shirt like Mark is wearing, you know that they can help you. So the clothes that the priest was wearing was demonstrating the place where he was connected, the place where he worked. And so the priest was to live, eat, sleep, and breathe the tabernacle. They were to think about 24-7 the place where God dwells and that that is their full-time 24-7, 365 occupation. Everything that went on in the tabernacle happened at the hand of the priests and under the leadership of the priesthood. So think about it. What a butcher is to a meat shop, the priests were to the sacrificial system. They were constantly having their hands always in the bloody mess of sin, dealing with it all the time, day after day after day. What a property manager is to a vast estate the priests were to the tabernacle because they had to manage the fire on the altar. They had to manage the wicks on the lampstand. They had to manage the bread on the table. They had to manage everything in this place where God dwelt. Or what a secret service agent is to the president, the priests were to the tabernacle. They were the bodyguards, as it were, of the tabernacle, always guarding, protecting, preserving the purity and holiness of God's house, making sure it's not profane, defiled in any way. And... What a moving company is to a traveling show, the priests were to the tabernacle. Because every time the glory cloud of God's presence went up and moved, that meant the priests had to pack up everything, carry everything, and then set it up once again when the glory cloud rested in a new place. So they were to live, eat, sleep, and breathe the place that they were connected to. The the blue, purple, scarlet yarns, the gold in their outfit was also reflected and represented in the very linen garment, the garments that were covering the tabernacle as well. So they were connected to the temple. And in case they ever waned and wavered in this dedication, in case they ever forgot who they worked for, they had this reminder always on them. Look at Exodus 28, verse 36 and 37. Exodus 28, 36 and 37. You shall make, and this is going on there, the turban on their head. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. So every single time they put on the outfit, they had this inscription that reminded them, I'm dedicated to the Lord. I'm holy to the Lord. Uh, this illustration might be helpful. In some running events, you'll have someone who's called the pace setter. And this is usually long distance running events. And their sole job is to run at a very fast pace for their teammates to kind of set the, the running pace so that you would break your personal best or so that your team would, would win the time. And the idea is that they would be the fastest person 
kind of setting the trajectory, setting the pace that you're supposed to run. Well, in a sense, the priesthood of Israel was to be the national pace setter for holiness. They were to be the ones who demonstrated to the people, this is what it looks like to be fully, completely dedicated to the holiness of the Lord. They were to be able to say to the people, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Be holy like me as I am holy like the Lord. Well, there's only one problem. They failed miserably at this job. In fact, when the prophets rise up to explain to the people, you're going into exile, God is kicking you out of this land, here's one of the reasons he gives for this. This is from Ezekiel. Your priests have violated my instructions. They've defiled my holy things. They make no distinction between what is holy and what is common. They do not teach my people the difference between what is clean and what is unclean. They disregard my Sabbath days, my holy days, so that my name is dishonored among them. So the very thing the priests were to do, to uphold the honor of God's name, to demonstrate what it looked like to be dedicated to the Lord, is the, they do the very opposite. They profane God's name. If the priests don't have to do that, then why do I have to do that? If the priests are doing that, why can't we do that? They were leading the people in the wrong direction. So you turn page of your Bible to the New Testament, and as you do that, the hope and anticipation that the Old Testament leaves us with is that there will be a priest who comes whose character will actually match his clothing, whose actions will actually reflect what is written on the forehead of the priest. And that's exactly what you see in the life of Christ. In the life of Christ, you see the Son of God offering the perfect obedience to the Father that the nation of Israel never could, that no one ever could. And so what you see in Jesus' actions, what you hear in Jesus' words, is a son who is so totally dedicated to his father that he will be obedient to him even to the point of death and death on a cross. So the influence behind every one of Christ's actions, he tells us, is this in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of my father who sent me. As a parent, if my kids woke up every morning and said that, my house would be a different place. But they don't. But Jesus did. The motivation that pulsed through Jesus' spiritual bloodstream, he tells us in John 12, 27 and 28. This section in John 12, Jesus is turning his attention from his public ministry to the cross that he's going to suffer on. And he knows the cross is facing him and he says this to his disciples. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That was what pulsed through his spiritual bloodstream. And then what was the assessment and evaluation of Jesus' character? When Jesus was scrutinized meticulously, when they tried to bring the whole book against him, even falsely, Pilate comes out in John 19.4 and says, I am bringing Jesus out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. At the same time that the priesthood of Israel was examining the Passover sacrifice, inspecting it for its blemishes and spots and everything, Jesus is being examined in Pontius Pilate's court. And Pontius Pilate says, more than he knows, I find no guilt in this man. In fact, remember Pontius Pilate's wife has a dream and she's freaking out. She says, this man is innocent. Have nothing to do with him. But like most politicians, Pilate was spineless and didn't know what to do. Well, every priest leading up to Jesus had to do something over and over and over again. No, not offer sacrifices for others. They had offered sacrifice for their own sins. 
Every priest, every day, started out their day offering a sacrifice for himself. When Jesus comes to deal with sin, he merely offers the sacrifice of himself. Every priest leading up to Christ was offering sacrifices for others. Christ offers a sacrifice, and he himself is that sacrifice that he offers. He's both the priest that offers and the offering that is laid down on the altar. And the banner over Christ's life, over his obedience, over his death, reads, Holy to the Lord. Everything he did fell under that banner. So for you, if you are in Christ, that same banner has been placed over your life. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He's speaking to believers who are struggling with sin. He says this to them. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So where's the temple today? Just look around. This is the temple. This is the temple of the Lord, the, the place where God's spirit dwells. Therefore, you're a holy people. What does that mean for you? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So what does it mean to be in Christ? It means that we are the holy dwelling place of God by his spirit who are to live holy to the Lord. So Jesus has redeemed you from sin. That's a true, glorious, wonderful state. He's redeemed you from sin. And he has redeemed you to holiness, to be dedicated to the Lord. One Puritan said it this way, if you only preach pardon from sin and not also power over sin, you only preach a half gospel and not the whole gospel. Christ redeems us from sin and he redeems us to righteousness. You have died to sin so that you might live to righteousness. Another way to put it is like this. In Christ, you are holy with the holiness of Christ. He has placed on you his own status. And guess what? He's actually going to make you in practice be like him in character. That's what Christ is up to. So what does holiness in practice mean? It means that the banner hanging over every single area of your life reads, holy to the Lord, totally dedicated to the Lord. And if Mike Bruce were up here, he'd say this. God is calling you to a 24-7 365 dedication to him. No part-timers or compartmentalizers or weekend warriors need apply. Holiness is a 24-7, 365 dedication to the Lord. But it is one in which it is a status we have by grace and therefore a practice we can live out by grace. We do not become holy so that we can be holy. We are holy and therefore we live holy lives. And so I'd ask you, in what areas of your life are you neglecting to say, I have been bought with a price and I am not my own, so therefore I need to glorify God in blank? What is the Lord filling in for you there? And what would it look like to write over that area, holy to the Lord? Well, finally, the glory and beauty of the priest's clothing communicated their representative status their representative service, I should say, the fact that they served for others. So if you watch sports or you just see commercials, you'll see athletes either featuring on their clothing a brand, a company, a product that they represent, or you'll see them in that commercial for that company. And you know that they're sponsored by such and such because of the connection. Or if, if you watch NASCAR racing, you don't have to guess because you'll see placard all over the car these company logos and branding products because that person represents that logo. 
Well, a similar image is reflected in the priest's clothing. Look at verses 9 to 12 of Exodus 28. Exodus 28, 9 to 12. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then later in Exodus 28, it mentions the chest piece that has 12 different precious stones, each with one of the names of the tribes so that Aaron will bear the names of the sons of Israel on his heart when he goes into the presence of the Lord. So whenever the priest puts on his outfit, he is perpetually, continually reminded who he is serving because on his shoulders and on his chest is all the names of the tribes of Israel because the priest was a role of service. It was a role of service always on behalf of the people. And this was much different than the other priesthood around Israel at the time. So in other ancient Near Eastern religions, the role of a priest was about social and religious status. The priest was above the people, over the people, because they had special knowledge. They had special access. They had a special relationship with the supposed gods that the other people did not have. It's kind of a caste system, as it were. But the priests of Israel were to be a servant of the people. They were always reminded, with the names on their shoulders and hearts, that they were to carry the burdens of the sins of the people as they went about the sacrificial system. That when they prayed, they were remembering that they were praying on behalf of the people as they carried their names on their hearts. And every time they entered into the presence, they were carrying the weight of the nation with them. They were carrying the people with them into the presence of God. And so whenever they came to do their work, they were reminded that they were to be servants on behalf of the people. Is this any surprise that when the true and high priest appears, he speaks like this? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over others, and their great ones exercise power over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus speaks like this about his people. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. He is a priest who serves, and he is a priest who always remembers the people whom he labors on behalf of. And just as the names of the people were placed on the shoulder of the priest, so at the cross we see the great name exchange, the great exchange of names. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So your name and all that it represents, all the lying, all the lusting, all the profaning, all the pride, all the selfishness, all the hypocrisy, all the failing to do what you ought, all the hiding and shame and guilt is laid on Christ's shoulders. Your name and all it represents was laid on Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our name. Why? So that Christ and all his name represents could be placed upon you. All his purity, all his obedience, all his righteousness, all his perfection, all the love that the Father has for his Son, 
all the beauty and glory of Christ could be placed upon you. The cross is the great name exchange. Ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion, humanity has been painfully aware of the shame and guilt of sin. A sense of of nakedness before the Lord, longing to be clothed and covered in garments of glory and beauty that wipes away all the shame and guilt. Adam and Eve's first sight after they sinned was their shameful nakedness. That's what they saw. That's what they recognized. And their first reaction was to cover it with fig leaves. So we have, since then, an innate, undeniable sense of guilt and shame that sets us looking for something that will cover it and conceal it. And the world is happy to hold out all sorts of coverings to conceal that guilt and shame, but they turn out to fade like fig leaves. If you could just cover yourselves in good works, in humanitarian devotion, your guilt and shame would go away, but the clothing never seems good enough. It never seems to cover enough. Or if you could just cover yourself in external cosmetic beauty with this procedure, with this product, you would find the glory and beauty that you're looking for. But let's be honest, we're all getting uglier day by day or eventually. If you would just achieve this status or if you would just get this position or if you would just have this possession or if you would just be in with this crowd, you would finally reach that beauty and glory that you're longing for that would cover what you're struggling with. And either we fail to get there or we get there and we find that we've succeeded at all the wrong things. And the gospel holds out to us the only clothing that can cover our shame and guilt with glory and with beauty. That in Christ, he, in his humility, was stripped of everything. On the cross, he hung in the clothing of shame and guilt for us so that we could be clothed in glory and beauty. So the promise from Isaiah was this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me in a robe of righteousness. So clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, for in him is a covering that never fails, a glory that will never fade, and a beauty that will never diminish. And I can do no better than ending this sermon in this series with a poem by John Newton. John Newton would write poems based on what he was studying and then give them to his people and then teach them how to sing it. And he was good at it. He wrote Amazing Grace, after all. Well, he wrote one on Aaron and his role and his garments. He said this, See Aaron, God's anointed priest, within the veil appear, in robes of mystic meaning dressed, presenting Israel's prayer. The plate of gold which crowns his brows, his holiness describes. His chest displays in shining rows the names of all the tribes. With the atoning blood he stands before the mercy seat, and clouds of incense from his hands arise with odor sweet. Urim and Thummim near his heart, in rich engravings worn, the sacred light of truth impart to teach and to adorn. Through him the eye of faith descries a greater priest than he. Thus Jesus pleads above the skies for you, my friends, and me. He bears the names of all his saints, deep on his heart engraved, attentive to the state and wants of all his love has saved. In him a holiness complete, light and perfection shine, and wisdom, grace, and glory meet, a savior all divine. The blood which as a priest he bears, for sinners is his own, the incense of his prayers and tears perfume the holy throne. 
In him my weary soul has rest, though I am weak and vile. I read my name upon his chest, and I see the Father smile. Let's pray.